Welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is Beyond the Illusion. In this episode, we have a conversation with author and world traveler Tom Eckersley. At the time of this recording, Tom is outside of the country, so we used software to connect us for this conversation. Tom has written a book about his life and the particularly difficult challenges he's lived through. But before we go any further, I want to let you all know that what Tom describes in his book and what he discusses on this podcast are extremely traumatic events that could potentially trigger a memory or strong reaction from those who have also experienced trauma in their lives. So please take special care to make sure that you are in a safe environment when you listen to this episode, especially if you feel there is a potential that this recording could be a trigger for you. Now, I'll go ahead and give you a brief overview of Tom's book, which is titled Journey of a Post-Traumatic Soul, because the first part of this interview with Tom will make more sense if I do that. From an early age, Tom had what you would call a difficult path. He was tormented in the younger years of his life by an internal pain that he didn't know the source of. This pain was the driving force of the actions and reactions in his life, and in hindsight were actually cries for help that he really didn't get until much later. And then, suddenly, after taking psychedelics and a very interesting twist of fate, Tom has an encounter with a man that sexually assaulted him as an eight-year-old child and he suddenly has the repressed memory of this event rush back into his conscious mind. And I'll stop right there to let Tom fill you in on the rest of the story. Let's go to the conversation with Tom, Tiana, and myself. I actually got about halfway through your book, and yeah. first of all, I want to say that it's a really good book. It's, it's pretty fascinating. I find myself like wanting to just go and finish the book right now actually because <laughs> I was reading awesome. it right before this yeah so I'm really it's really engaging so and it's well written too so it's good to hear because I uh to tell you the truth I, I sort of did it and I was like I've had enough of this <laughs> I sort of published it and put it out there and like that was hard enough oh yeah and then, I, bet. Um, I haven't reread it um since finishing it um but I suppose a good thing out of that like and I wrote it in a particular way which is meant to be like succinct and emotionally um uh loaded i guess like just raw in the way that i wrote it so that it gives the person a a good sort of insight into the realities of what it might be like for someone who's gone through um different traumatic circumstances in particular with childhood sexual abuse and this sort of thing yeah yeah exactly And, and that's i think what i found so engaging is that it was kind of raw you know it was really like you could tell the the emotions were still there and you put them on paper um mm. and you know writing a book's got to be a lot of work i'm sure you were tired and ready to be done with it <laughs> well it's it's funny because it's only 55 pages i think from from memory uh including references and what have you at the end and all that and uh you know there was like y- years of writing like i think of it's probably like you know 60 centimeters of of thickness of paper uh that i would have filled up with like writings and journals and this sort of thing which you know some of which i kind of ripped up and burnt uh along the way because i didn't want to have to cart them around the world while i was traveling and other ones i left in australia i'm sure that just writing it is sort of you know was having to relive it and that's part of why it was so hard to write the book yeah definitely it's uh and i think also like um because i'm you know not having any 
not having a family or even close friends who can or want to talk about it. Um, you know, I've got a few close friends who I've, I can talk to about it because uh, they're just more able to. But the majority, like all of my family, can't talk about it. Uh, and, you know, my half-brothers, my dad, my mum died. Uh, and that was sort of a catalyst for actually recalling, I, th- uh, I think, what, what occurred when I was a kid. My mum dying, but the... Um, yeah, the whole process of writing it and not and being alone, sort of traveling in Australia, and uh, then um, primarily, actually, the final sort of writing of it was done in India, uh, and then finalised in Sri Lanka. Um, so I was like, I've been traveling since mid two thousand and sixteen uh, around the world and writing notes along the way, and then it probably only took a couple of months to actually put that 55 pages of summary together from all the notes that I sort of remembered and still had with me. Yeah, I actually... But it's definitely difficult. I met Tom when I was traveling um, in Tbilisi, Georgia, the country, and um, that was one of the things I think that impressed me the most and made me really want to have you on the podcast was how forthcoming you were about your experience because... In our culture, um, there's so much shame and secrecy around rape, around sexual abuse for anyone, um, male or female. But I think, you know, lately there's been more um, people coming out, especially women in the Me Too movement. But I think there's still a lot of room for men to come out and tell their story and to, um, you know, have this conversation that's needed. Uh, definitely. And I think, you know, I can't necessarily compare, you know, myself to others or to women or what have you, but I would, you know, just as an idea, I think that for men, there's perhaps even men are less, less willing, like we use less words per day and we're less practiced at talking about emotional stuff. And um, it's, it may in some ways actually be harder for men, you know, individually and culturally to uh, talk about these sorts of things because we're sort of meant to be, you know, the strong protector um, historically and all the rest of it. So there's all sorts of things that are sort of tied into unconscious beliefs and um, subconscious schema in terms of how we think we should act or react and express ourselves with, you know, family, friends, the world, etc. And uh, but I've, you know, <laughs> I grew up with an artist dad and a very sort of eccentric kind of uh, and functional mum as well. And spending lots of time, you know, around her, you know, a lot of ways it was like she really didn't give a shit in a good way about like what people think, uh, this and that. And she sort of bred that into me. So I think that helped. Um, bit by bit to kind of deal with the potential stigma. And I certainly had bad reactions from certain people telling them the truth of it, uh, you know, or no reaction, especially from, you know, certain family uh, members and this sort of thing, um, which makes it very difficult. But it's kind of uh, sort of moved through that. And it's like um, just having, I suppose for me, it was like having this sort of inner strength or belief more so like what I've got to share of my personal experience, you know, 
in terms of suddenly knowing like, oh, this is why I've had a you know, past tendency when I was younger, et cetera, to go to extremes of, you know, partying and, you know, drinking too much, taking too many party drugs, this sort of thing. And um, essentially like having an addictive personality towards just about anything that sort of makes made me feel good in terms of whether it's drugs, sex, um, what have you. And sort of over time sort of looking at uh, the effects of complex trauma on the brain and from a neurological point of view, just learning that it's like uh, looping, you know, you're just looping around in these uh, psycho-emotional circles. And if the person doesn't know what's going on, that's pretty horrible because you're just stuck in this kind of, you know, trigger reaction, trigger reaction of things and not knowing what's going on. Then people say in your family or what have you all uh, think, oh, you know, so-and-so is just going out and partying too much or doing this and that or they're not dealing with their studies or why can't they do this or that? And it's like, well, if, they don't, if the person doesn't know what happened to them or isn't aware of any sort of traumatic circumstance in their life um, and they don't know what's what's going on, then they can't really do anything and then, you know, it's worse right, <laughs> because if you don't know. You went most yeah. of your life, um, which is, is fairly common, having having had blocked this deeply traumatic experience in your life, um, you didn't remember it for most of your life, but you were just feeling the effects and having it mm. expressed in all these ways and, um, you know, in, in depression and anxiety. And as you said, in all of these effects, um, whether it's with drugs or um, suicide attempt or um, other things, but not understanding what was the cause, which would be in then being judged because of these mm. things um, without knowing that that in itself is so paralyzing to not know what the cause is, then you, how can you fix it? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and I mean, I thought when I was younger, it's like, oh, you know, got to do with just feeling not connected to my, you know, being bullied throughout school from a young age and through to like not feeling like I sort of fitted in and this uh, sort of thing and think, oh, okay, well, it's just that or whatever. It's, um, or it's just life, you know. I was a cer certain kind of resignation when I was younger as well and even throughout my adult life, it's like, okay, well, feeling this or dealing with this kind of depression and things and having that come up is just going to be a part of life and, you know, I guess that's how other people feel and whatever. I developed sort of ways of dealing with that, and it's primarily through sort of uh, exercise and working out really hard because I did a lot of sort of athletics and running and you know cross training and um, uh, martial arts and things as well. But like that would always make me feel good, and then sort of concentrating on you know good nutrition and this sort of thing. But this was even before I knew had remembered what had happened to me as a kid. I just sort of dealt with it from a general point of view like that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too. You you talked about that a few times in the book where you kind of use exercise as a form of therapy. And Absolutely. You, yeah, yeah I, I find that to be really useful for myself as well because, you know, I run a lot and, um, you know, when I'm not running, it seems like everything in life is a little bit harder to deal with. And when I'm, mm. you know, when I'm feeling good physically and taking that time to exercise, it is a form of therapy. You do get a lot of time to think and you feel good about yourself. So I did want to ask you, like, maybe for the for the listeners you could give just a brief very brief overview of what your book is about 
because I know, you know, um, it kind of centers around this event in your life, but there's a lot more to it. Can you do that for us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a summary of my life in 50 words or less. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, so it's basically a story autobiographical. I did it fully on, uh, will sort of know who I am after this, but like I, I published it um, uh, anonymously, um, primarily because like I don't want to have to deal, deal with the, the sort of uh, any side effects or have to answer too many questions or all this sort of stuff because that kind of brings up certain things in me. I don't actually mind that so much now, which is why I'm quite happy to do this podcast. But it's, uh, to cut a long story short, it's basically about, remembering having been um, uh, raped uh, by a friend of my father's when I was um, just before my eighth birthday um, from memory. And this happened after my mum's death from metastatic breast cancer and she died in 2014. Um, and yeah, having a subsequent um, uh, remembering of this and then the sort of healing process of like suddenly realizing, oh, okay, um, that's happened. I actually confronted the guy on the day that I remembered. And it actually happened by giving this guy a hug at my exercise studio and clinic that I had in Melbourne, Australia. And I had these visual auditory and kinesthetic memories come flooding back into my mind's eye. And uh, it sort of connected to other things that I actually remembered, you know, in my past as far as like, wow what the hell is this? Um, and then it was just like kept on flooding in more and more and more. Uh, and I had to sort of run, well, walk quickly. I didn't run <laughs> to my uh, clinic room and sort of write down um, what I'd remembered because I was worried that like that sort of somewhat abstract, mem abstract memory was going to get um, suppressed again. So I was sort of writing it down. And I pretty much sat in my clinic room for the next few hours, like while uh, while this fellow and my uh, my dad was there as well, and some of their friends were doing a rehearsal for for a play. And uh, yeah, I um, stayed around until they'd finished, and then I uh, confronted this guy out in front of my uh, and very gently confronted him. <laughs> it's like you know, I didn't say like, oh, you raped me as a child, but now I'm. <laughs> <laughs> gonna kill you I mean because I actually the first reaction I had was like I just saw myself grabbing him by the head and smashing his skull until it was just mush on my uh, exercise studio floor in front of my dad and all his friends and I decided that my, that wasn't a good idea because <laughs> for obvious reasons uh, that wouldn't wouldn't um, wouldn't be functional for my future of uh, freedom and removal of suffering um, but yeah, I, I just sort of gently confronted this guy in a sort of, I was direct, but sort of soft in how I put it to him. Because for whatever reason, it's almost like, I don't know why I was having a moment of compassion for this guy or whatever. Um, but he was like, oh no, of course, Tom, I'd never do that. It's like, yeah, oh, you're lying, mate. <laughs> I can tell I'm like looking at him. So I can't even look me in the eye. I'm like, mother I mean, you, you know, you child rapist. Um, pedophile. <laughs> uh, I'm probably not allowed to swear on that 
the podcast, you'll probably have to delete that out. We've had a G rating <laughs> up until now, but <laughs> no, it's understandable um, all the rage that you felt, you know. It's, yeah, it's funny. My mum, my mum swore a lot more than my dad actually. So thanks, mum. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Anne. I didn't, uh, I didn't actually call her by mum. So uh, yeah, it's um, but essentially, yeah, the book is it's recounting that. But I, and you know, my the way I'm always uh, thinking roundabout kind of ways. Like it's just the way my mind works. Because one of the other. You know, uh, around this time as well, like I saw a neuropsychologist and had a EEG, electroencephalograph, um, and, you know, I essentially, like, I guess as a byproduct of the complex trauma of PTSD, it's like an attention deficit. Um, uh, and I think that's kind of like a side, of, a side effect of, you know, having the trauma when I was younger and this and that, and also mm -hmm. just know the way my brain and my my mind works so it's a bit sometimes difficult for people that are more linear in their uh patterns of thought etc to relate to what i'm saying which was like a challenge in writing the book because it's uh uh you know taking sections of time and different concepts and everything and bring it together in a way that i think would be understandable to other people and you know the difference is i suppose is that you know, I live with that as just my mind and how I am. I'm generally pretty happy with, with that <laughs> now. And, you know, sometimes it causes me trouble, which is why I do yoga and meditation or all the rest of it. And I suppose that's another thing with, like, the exercise. It's like I grew up doing yoga with my mum. And I've sort of come back to that getting older. Um, you know, I'm 40 now. I'm sort of a yoga teacher. And You um, have listed in your book a number of, of tools or things um, that helped you in your healing process mm. that I'm sure would be useful for listeners who've gone through something similar um, kind of to know about. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the first things that I did before, because sometimes, you know, at different times in my life when I'm, you know, recovering from a attempted suicide, so when I was 20, on my 20th birthday, I had to take my girlfriend at the time for an abortion, which was a horrible experience um, and then a few months later I stabbed myself with a carving knife in the solar plexus like straight in and um, oh. that was a I can, you know, it's, it's, I can sort of laugh about it now but it's like a terrible experience yeah. believe me don't stab yourself yeah. in anywhere it's a bad idea. I don't think anyone ever yeah. consciously really yeah. chooses that, right? No, it's a, it's a very intense part of the book when you describe that. So, yeah, because yeah, it was all happening. This all happened before you realized that you had been raped. You So you attempted suicide several times before yeah. you realized this was the trauma that was like deep inside of you. And Yeah, yeah, yeah and I was trying to get deep inside of me with a 20 centimeter carving knife. <laughs> it was, um, I literally like with both hands on the on the handle, like just had my, and I, I mean, anyone that hasn't read the book, it's going to sound more shocking than if they get the background. But, um, you know, this was after, it was a, drug-induced psychosis but really it was a byproduct of that undiagnosed trauma and also the fact that you know that had been accentuated by having to go through this uh, abortion and having a terrible breakup and then going out and trying to sort of make myself feel better taking party drugs and while I was working as a bicycle career and you know riding my bike for eight hours a day 
coming down from party drugs and whatever. Um, and then went out one night and I only had like half a pill of ecstasy. And the problem is, this is a seg to, to that, but like a lot of people, including uh, certain family members, so I've got, it's like, oh, it's just a drug problem or this and that. It's like, no, it's not a drug problem. It's like, that's a, I'm having a reaction to that in this, at those times and whatever, and I'm seeking something like to take me out of those, those painful inner experiences. Right. To like get away from, Essentially, like trying to stop feeling the internal pain, you know, self-medicating, pain and, all mm-hmm. this sort of, and, and but at the same time, not really knowing or being cognizant of what's actually going on, and not really having the network of support around me or any sort of counselling or what have you to at that time. And I mean, my mum found me after I'd uh, stabbed myself back then. <laughs> and sorry, I didn't put this in the book. I don't think, or maybe I did. I can't remember. Like on my twentieth, I think I, yeah, it was my twentieth birthday. My mum gave me a card from her shop, the Green Store. It was an environmentally friendly homewares and uh, amazing shop. Um, but she had this like lino cut uh, sort of card made by an Australian artist, and it had this uh, Italian dude who, with a gun in his hand, like lying on the kitchen floor, and it had the uh, Italian women running across and. Mario, mio Dio, and it's like, says there, some men will do anything to escape washing the dishes. And um, my mum used to give me a hard time about not washing the dishes or helping out enough. And it's really weird because I stabbed myself over the tiles in the kitchen that I didn't wash dishes in. (laughs) And I did that, like, because I wanted to make it easier for cleaning up my body and the blood. Like, that's what I actually thought at the time when I was having this psychosis and was feeling like I was being forced by existence to off myself, basically. And it was not, it was the important thing that people should know about that is that I didn't want to be killing myself. It was like, I was in a psychotic state, not wanting to kill myself, but being forced to kill myself because it was like, if I didn't, then, you know, I was going to be basically go completely mad and be a burden on my mother, family, uh, etc. More than if I just died, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is a pretty depressing, very depressing thought. Like, uh, uh, and I mean, but that's that's like an outward expression of how I've sort of felt for a long time, like feeling depressed as a teenager and younger than that as well. You laugh a lot while you're saying these really difficult things. Has that been part of a coping mechanism to deal oh, with yeah. this? Humor intense? is one of my saving mm-hmm. graces, you know. <laughs> I grew up watching too much Monty Pythons and Monkey Magic and all this sort of stuff, so it's it's a it's a deeply ingrained like uh, coping mechanism, humor and and satire. And I mean it is, it's sort of unbelievable, you know, these uh, experiences when it's like at a certain point of, you know, Especially because it's like uh, I've experienced experience the depths of, you know, despair and depression and the most horrible sides of things. It's like, uh, um, or you can do at a certain point. It's like laugh and let it go, uh, bit by bit. And it's like with full, not in not in a sort of self denial way, but in a way of like, you know, because I'm still in disbelief of the things I've experienced. But it is like a nervous laugh. It's like 
I hope that doesn't happen again. <laughs> uh-huh. It's like yeah. the other part of me, like the wise part or whatever, is like, yeah, better not bloody happen, happen again, you idiot. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seemed like even after that, there were it, it just was a rough go for you for a while during that period in your life because after that, didn't you get committed to an institution for a while? Or? Yeah, no, after my mum died and then when I had confronted this guy and everything, I spoke to my dad and told him that same day and it was like, you know, uh, too difficult for um, for him at that moment to, to confront um, and then trying to communicate with my family and close friends. I didn't really get the support that I would have preferred and then, you know, I was taking too many of the ADHD medicines um, that my psychiatrist had given me. It was like dexamphetamine, which is basically speed for ADHD, um, which I, you know, yeah, I, really it wasn't the best medication to have. <laughs> it's not, not especially like when you can't um, control how much you're, you're having. Uh, and so like, I end up most most likely out of that having a speed psychosis and also going out and partying and taking some uh, party drugs. But this was all in suppression again, similar to what happened when I was 20, of, um, you know, not having or feeling like I could do anything about this situation because it was like, oh, I've done what, I, done what I can to try and sort of reach out and get some support from family Um and especially family and you know there's a certain thing also with close friends and things it's like not wanting to burden them and this sort of thing uh or talk about those things so i was sort of putting myself into a corner and not um which i totally don't advise like essential essential communication on those things it's like you have to be able to ask for help i mean this is one of the things of just saying, like, you know, I'm not, not in a good way, not feeling good. Now, this is what happened, like, I sort of told my dad that because I'd had an image of um, gutting myself on camera to leave a, uh, like, literally, like, Kiri Kiri, which is like, and it was the same thing of, like, that feeling of, like, this part of my mind or my psyche basically trying to sort of come out and express those things that I couldn't express. But this was, like, playing over in my mind. I was like, this isn't good. This is like the exact same feeling and the sort of energy and everything that I had when I was 20. I was like getting scared of, like I was sort of hiding in bed at my mum's uh, house, like after she died, I sort of moved in, in there, etc. And the sort of, then I asked my dad for help and his, um, he uh, and my stepmom, um, helped me with going to the St. Vincent's uh, public hospital, which, you know, ultimately it was helpful to sort of, I mean, had to do something, but um, that hospital, it's also where my mum ended up going and having emergency surgery and then uh, dying as a result of all of that. And it's where I had my emergency surgery when I was 20. So there's a lot of sort of karmic mm, memory and everything around that hospital, you know, it's all... <laughs> after I smashed my tooth out when I was skateboarding as a kid I went to that hospital it's got like yeah I've got a lot of karma at that hospital that's for sure yeah Um, you know one of the I think really important points that you made in that book was that 
you were reaching out for help and it it's almost like the people around you just didn't know what to do like it wasn't that they were bad people or anything it was just that they weren't i guess there for you in the way that you needed them to be like even when your dad went and got you after you stabbed yourself from the hospital and then he mm. had he had you walk home you know <laughs> and i thought yeah, like yeah, wow yeah. this you know he's a good man he mm. just you know sometimes he forgets <laughs> like you know he's a he's a sort of very sensitive guy but he's also you know tough you know because he's had tough things to deal with in his own life but it's like at that moment it's like i don't want to have to think about where the f- i'm going like you're my father you should know better what, what <laughs> it's like order the f- taxi man i've mm-hmm. got a f- i've got 28 staples in my abdomen but it was like i couldn't say that back then because i didn't have that kind of i can joke about it now because i've sort of developed a bit more and I could say that, you know, to my dad even in that sort of way now. But that's been through an evolution of conversation with my dad and he's had um, different counselling over time, which has helped him a lot to open up. And this is actually an important thing, like, because he's, a, I guess, a baby boomer generation, post-war and all of this. And for anyone, but I think especially men, it's really important that they get some sort of, like, professional counselling and learn how to express their uh their inner world in a way that's sort of functional to themselves and to their lives and family if they've got a family or not i think that's a really key point that um that this discussion can bring out like that's what i'm seeing in our society so many of the ills of our society has to do with this um emotional repression and even what you know it's been coming out more where we're talking about toxic masculinity which is not that Mm. masculine energy in itself is toxic but there's a certain expression a lower expression of toxic um of toxicity in the masculine which is about um dominance aggression or valuing dominance and and aggression and devaluing um emotions and so Mm. this inability to value and express our emotions um and create this repression is is what creates this pressure cooker and it comes out in all these ways in our society um that are really unhealthy that we're seeing more and more and so um yeah i think you know not necessarily that everyone's gonna you had such an intense story and i don't think necessarily everyone's gonna be able to, to relate to all the pieces in your story but the underlying current of like Tim was saying, you know, you trying to ask for help and and people not knowing how to show up for you and and not being in touch with what was deeply causing the problem underneath it. Um, I think those are universal things that are are needed to be discussed in our society now. Definitely, yeah. It's uh, and I think the um. I mean, toxic masculinity is sort of one thing, but like just the ability to open up without fear, uh, whatever it is, I think even with your man, woman, anything else, you know, all the iterations of a human animal. I mean, we, uh, I think that we're just taught to have too much fear about like, uh, and it's subconscious, it's within us. Like even growing up in Australia, we're a secular society, but when you think about it, we're not really secular because we're all with Australia was created by the British and it's the Church of England, etc. And there's all sorts of weird things that get 
brought into the unconscious of people via societal status quo and behaviour and um, what's culturally accepted and what's not. And, um, you know, it's too complex for my brain to analyse. Someone smarter can write a thesis on it. But it's um, there's a lot more uh, things that impact us than just our individual lives and the immediate environment. Like, we've got the full depth of the history of humanity in the world in our unconscious and how, you know, the dark and the light and everything is working against one another rather than in uh, a symphony. It's, um, it's worrying because it's like looking at, say, for instance, mental health, um, and I'm kind of currently going through the last uh, month and a half of finishing my honours in psychology um, and looking at, like, how, how much worse... Uh, mental health is getting globally and then looking at the state of the environment and how, you know, I'm thinking to myself like, well it kind of makes sense when you look at like, if the world, if we're killing the world it's symbolic, it's like we're killing Mother Earth, Earth, we're killing ourselves essentially and then it's like if you, and kids see this sort of stuff and they know, they can feel what's going on as well and it's like well why would I want to be here for this, you know, and if they and it's sort of like um some people, it's like if they're incredibly sensitive or they don't have um, the sort of skills to be buoyant in, within themselves or whatever, or if they're just, they might just opt out, you know, through suicide. I think that's um, another key message is about destigmatizing um, mental health. Mm. That that, again, has been another like shameful thing to, to talk about or express. Um, uh, not feeling healthy in your mind and in what are people going to think and how are people going to judge me? And so people would hide that and um, that would lead to all of these negative consequences. And now we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, how we can address that in healthy ways and let it be okay. That even though you went, you know, you were committed in an institution, like obviously talking to you now, you're not crazy. You're not, you know, you're, you're a regular uh, functioning human in the world and so people mm. are so afraid that you know if we show these sides of ourselves um and we make ourselves vulnerable um what are people going to think and and how are, am i going to be perceived um, but we have to normalize this and realize that people are, are dealing with these types of issues um i think linked to that and the stigma and everything else is actually a combination of things like the government's aren't being progressive enough with the science that's actually out there and then they're not funding public hospitals like in Australia, et cetera. Like the hospital that I ended up in, um, like on the first night that I was in there, they put me in with two um, guys who were having their own psychoses or whatever, but they were violent. And one of the duties of care under the Mental Health Act in Australia and in Victoria is to provide a safe environment for the patients and they didn't do that. Um, And I ended up, escaping a fight between these guys after you know requesting 20 plus times to be moved somewhere else and they're like well we can't you've got to be in here um and then i got my elbow broken and dislocated by um the staff there when they were uh trying to uh restrain me because i was just trying to get out of there and they were like oh he's absconded from the uh it's like an oath i absconded these crazy one of them's like threatening to stab me with a sharpened uh, pencil and it's like the worst possible things that you can imagine like another thing that 
that first night uh, was just an example of how bad mental health institutions and healthcare in hospitals can be. The other thing is, like, and I went through a two-year um, mediation process with the Mental Health Complaints Commissioner in Victoria, who are kind of, you know, and don't take this the wrong way, Mental Health Complaints Commission, but you're kind of toothless because in the end there was no real resolution of what had occurred there and no changes in the practices. Like in the rest of the hospital, in the normal areas, there are CCTVs, yeah? And when you go into the mental health area, there's no CCTV, there's no permanent security there. And so there's no way of auditing actual events. And one of the events that actually happened there as well, after that first night and I was in that more contained area for five days or a week or whatever, I can't remember. And then I was in the general area um, which is still on lockdown. And, you know, I was dosed up on codeine and whatever. And then there was a male nurse that came in and I was half asleep. And then he's like draping his hand down my bare chest and down onto my abs. I like wake up and I'm like pulling the sheets up and like, you're right. And he's like, yeah, sorry. I was just seeing if you're okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. This is unbelievable. It's like, I'm in here because I've had a breakdown because of remembering being raped as a child. And then I, <laughs> get more trauma from going into the mental health uh, institution. I suppose that's one of the things, and it was like um, seeing that, and then there was an additional thing uh, that happened, um, just to exemplify. It's a difficult area to work, and it's a difficult area to develop, but it's only by people actually um, speaking about it and creating changes bit by bit that can then lead to more open dialogue and then more changes in um legal policy development and uh, more funding and and transparency and oversight through uh, mental health, uh, public mental health facilities, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, is that so, why is that why you are studying psychology now? Or are you in the hopes of working in that field so that you can make a difference there? Since you went through all these negative experiences, to, definitely one yeah. of the one of the things I don't necessarily want to work. It's more in sort of medical medico legal um, changes and shifts that I see that need to happen in, say, public healthcare and also the treatment of that Australia has for asylum seekers, which is horrendous, and the healthcare there and the suicides and all the rest of it that come out of that are just unbelievable and preventable. But science and and uh, actual reason and logic get ignored in favour of um, of other things, whatever they may be. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just like uh, lack of money or too much money in certain areas in terms of um, this and that. And it's just it's pretty disturbing, but it's like unless people actually confront that sort of darkness of the mental health industry in, in areas where it needs to be developed, we're going to keep on having more of this, and particularly with like increasing numbers of displaced people um, and within their own country, so whether it's Indigenous people in Australia or people from low socioeconomic backgrounds who have a higher risk of you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD and all the rest of it categorically yeah, around the world. Yeah, I think that there's like, in, in some people's mind, there becomes like a dehumanizing where they dehumanize the asylum seekers and, and mental health patients, they dehumanize them. And so they sort of maybe because it's so painful to see, they close their heart off and kind of 
stop seeing them really in a in a compassionate humane way which makes it easier to to make these choices which which are horrible you know which are unthinkable how we we're treating people yeah it's uh, you hit the nail on the head uh, because that's like you know even with doctors they'll be doing surgery or whatever and they'll uh, say make jokes or this and that because it's a way of di- of creating a compartmentalization between their sort of emotions and their cognitive selves that have to do a job, a certain job. And it's like, but at a certain point, it's like, well, you have to acknowledge that your emotions are actually also part of your reasoning process and they're there to um, help guide you, a, a form of information, like it's energy in motion that's there to help you. Yeah, I think, um, again, it goes back to, you know, we're, we're coming into this time where we're needing to create the balance with our masculine and feminine side. It doesn't matter if we're biologically a man or a woman. Um, all mm. of us are needing to um, have a healthy balance with our logical thinking mind and our emotion, emotional expression. And when, like mm. you said, when they work together, then we can make smart, compassionate decisions. Um, and the, the world has just been out of balance we've really valued masculine qualities and undervalued the feminine and and i think this is a time where we're seeing um the negative effects of that imbalance and we're starting to have these discussions i don't think it's been brought into balance yet but i think just having the discussions like you said is like the first step yeah i really like yeah i really like the way that you you put it tom that our emotions are actually another form of feedback that we're getting. It's, it's relevant data, you know, it's something that we can use to help us. And, but I do kind of want to go back. This is something I don't know if I'm going to get another chance Mm. to ask you. So I do want to ask you right now, there's a Mm. part in your book where, um, you have attempted suicide and then it's like you have a near death experience. (laughs) You encounter these beings that are like trying, can you describe that experience for us? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, yeah, uh, I thought it was a dream at the time, but it was like, um, basically, like, imagine if you're sort of in a blackness, you know, if you're asleep and you become, like, lucid in your dream, and um, only this wasn't a dream, and it's like, there's sort of, at the end of this long hallway, which isn't a hallway, it's like there's a dark path going to some sort of, know cloudy golden light but it's not like it's not like the light of heaven this was like a not this was like limbo where i was going you know if i died in that moment it would be like going to limbo or sort of like not a good place you know not where i want to be going (laughs) um and it was i was aware of this kind of it wasn't a hallway it was actually like these giant and when i say giant there's no real sense of scale it's just relative to me they seemed giant like big figures that were sort of like had their heads bowed and it was sort of like a, just a almost like big statues but they weren't statues and then i got the feeling i was like Man, are you like angels or like it's like where are your wings then <laughs> i couldn't see the wings but it was like uh and I, you know I'm, I'm laughing nervously now but it was a really disturbing um sort of out-of-body experience because i was like it was like i was being sucked along towards this uh the end of this towards this sort of limbo and away from what would be my body, I guess. But I didn't have any sense of my body. And that was in, I was in this space. And I was like, hang on, chick, where, where is my body? 
and then I was like freaking out in this, you know, um, and I, you know, it's like not having a body, but having a, you've got a sort of remembering like of your body or whatever. And it's like, I was sort of running in space. (laughs) It's like between these figures and saying like, please, you know, help me, help me. I've got to get back. I've got to get back, you know, freaking out, realizing that I wasn't actually connected to my physical body and you know they weren't helping like they just were it was like a feeling of depression and sort of sadness and like they weren't it was like they were you know and this is just my thing of it was like they were sort of my guardian angels or what have you and there seemed to be a fair few of them which is maybe explains why i've been able to survive so many um you know suicide attempts in that sense and then one of them said like if you want to go back, you've got to, um, you have to want to go back. And it's like, I want to go back. It's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Give me, I need instructions. Give me instructions. And it's like, cough. I was like, what? Cough. And I was like, in this space. And it was like, I was trying to cough. I was like, holy, I can't cough. How the fuck do I cough? And I was like trying to cough. And then, because, you know, in a dream, you can sort of get a sense of your sleeping body. I don't know if you have this, but it's like, I had no sense of connection to my, physical body and I was like trying to cough and I was like cough 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 trying to remember like my body which that sounds like a bit strange and <laughs> like trying to cough and then suddenly I coughed and they were like and this sort of voice or what it was like again again it was like so I coughed coughed and then I woke up and sort of sat up in my bed and was and cough was coughing and was back in my bedroom and awake and uh, yeah that was a really disturbing experience and then this same voice when i was awake in my room said now you've got to ask your parents for help my mom was alive at the time and i, w- I was like i can't do that it's like if you don't do it you're going to try it you're going to try this again and i did within a week i couldn't tell my parents like i did at the time i was like i can't tell them this this is like i don't want to put them through more stress and then i you know almost ran in front of a in front of traffic that same week it was the same thing of like feeling like I couldn't tell them the truth of how I was feeling and what was going on because I didn't want to stress them out. But also, um, you know, that ended up almost dreaming in. And it was only like at this moment, just when I was literally, I ran out the door of my house, my grandmother's old house, and it was like that same thing, that sort of same sort of part of my mind sort of wanting to get rid of me from the from the existence. Um, you know, I was running down the street and I was like, it's like this paranoia of like thinking that everyone on the street was like, why haven't you done it already? You know, why are you still here? And so I was like crying, running down the street and then got towards a, this, you know, three lane highway. Um, it was actually six lane, but like three lanes. In front of me. I was like staying there looking at the traffic and I was like crying thinking, man, I can't, <laughs> I can't believe this shit. It's like, why is this happening again? And I was like, you know, excuse my French again. This there's no being in this universe or multiverse that wants Tom Eckersley dead. And if they do, they can can wait. I'm gonna walk. <laughs> I'm like, and so I waited until the green man came up. And it was that that was actually the turning point of like actually saying like, no, it's like that paranoid, horrible part of my psyche that's trying to encourage me to kill myself. I'm like, I'm waiting. And if if the because un- it's not. It's like the thing of like, 
am I fated to just like kill myself or whatever? Is this what like I'm born for? Is this the universe or God or whatever telling me that I have to, this is how I have to die? I was just saying like, no, I don't believe in that. I'm waiting for the green man and then I'm going to cross. And I just sort of walked back because um, I'd locked my keys in the house at that time. And I sort of decided I'd walk up to visit um, my friend uh, Will at his veterinary clinic. And um, I didn't even tell him. And he's one of my oldest friends. I've known each other since pretty much I was I was born. Our mums were really uh, close friends. I couldn't even tell him what was going on. I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to get a cup of coffee or whatever. And it's like, I can't even, I think I'd left my uh, wallet in the house as well because I wasn't expecting to go back there. So I didn't want to like, it's weird because it's like I was almost willing to die because I was too embarrassed to tell the truth of, of the fact that I was having like a terrible time and having a psych, psychotic episode wanting to kill myself. And I mean, that's a weird thing to say that almost dying because I'm like too embarrassed to tell the truth. I think that a lot of people can relate to that mm-hmm. as you know, it sounds really extreme, but it, but it is amazing how our fears um, can, can get that big to, to lead to such extreme um, results. But it's incredible that you had this sort of divine intervention that assisted you to get to, to be able to tell so yeah i'm sure the angels were shaking their head after heads after i didn't uh tell my parents to be like it's gonna do it again i told you he's not it's not gonna yeah so many of us just quietly suffer alone you know internally and i think you know it's it kind of goes back to a lot of the things you were saying about your family like they're the same way you know your brothers and your dad they Mm -hmm. wouldn't even talk to you about what happened to you and, you know, it's a similar, similar behavior pattern there, you know, just not wanting to face it, you know, not, not wanting to let anyone know that something's wrong here, you know? Yeah. What suggestion yeah. would you have for people for how they can overcome that? Because, because I, I think that is really, you know, problematic and um, it's really difficult for people to be able, especially men, to be able to ask for help and, um and do you have any suggestions for how someone could get that courage without having to go to such extreme measures? Yeah, totally. Uh, at least start by saying it out loud to yourself or writing it down, and um, find. And if some, and if you've tried to tell someone and they're not receptive, then you have to find you know, someone who will be receptive, and just like I suppose, in this sounds a bit weird, but treat yourself like gold rather than like dirt in the sense of you know and it's obviously very useful as well but like just treat yourself like you're worthwhile and that your suffering is is worthwhile and like honoring honoring your experience and your suffering by actually being honest about it and um, and sharing that uh, consciously with yourself so you can clarify what it is that you're actually going through but then share it with someone or, or others that you feel like you can trust. And if you don't feel like you can trust anyone, then just uh, you need to sort of find a, a, a person or a group that you can relate to and that you feel safe with and you can express that to. Yeah, the and back of your book, you have all these resources, which I thought was really wonderful, different mm. hotlines and groups that people could um, reach out to for help. Yeah, and I mean, on that, like, you know, it's, Totally. If you if you have the presence of mind, call 
you know, helpline or any any of those services. Like, because I mean, active listening is probably one of the most important things, and compassionate listening. Um, and I suppose, and I don't really want to give advice because it's different for for everyone. If I give bad advice, then it'll come back to me. So, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe depending on who you are, it might be easier to speak to someone who's not your family mm. or not in your immediate circles and that doesn't have any sort of direct feedback that could, you know, in inverted commas, ruin your life or whatever. Right. You want to sort of get a sounding board, a neutral sounding board that you can relate to. And I mean, that's why counsellors and psychologists, etc., um, whether they're, you know, you're in direct contact or whether it's on a hotline or whatever, oh, that's a, a very good option. And preferably someone who's got the skill sets to assist, or at least, you know, a good listening ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's really just someone to have a good listening ear, and then to be able to uh, relate um, to you without even necessarily giving advice. Well, Tom, this has been really great. We appreciate you coming on and talking with us. We're, you know, we're really um, thankful that you were able to do this, and um, you know work it out with us in cross time zones and everything yeah thank you for the opportunity it's um it's actually uh <laughs> it's been great it's also like reminded me it's like definitely there's still i'm you know pretty nervous talking about this and it's sort of but like with the book like you know my aim is just to share it with as many people as possible and i should say that it, so if anyone wants a copy of that book um, you don't have to buy it on Amazon. You can like contact you guys or they can go to my um, website and email me, innate.guru, and I'll send them a PDF version that they can read it. Because the, the best feedback that I've gotten is to have about, I think, it's about six, maybe seven people that I've met that I've given that book and they've then come back and told me um, that they've had the same experience. And that was... Uh, Essentially, why I wrote the book is for, for people that have shared similar experiences to heal and to, through open dialogue and feeling like the stigma has been broken down and to open up other people who haven't had those experiences to the opportunity to become essentially better listeners for their family, friends, and strangers. Mm-hmm. And we'll have that link um, on the site where we post this. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you again. Can you uh, give us your website one more time? Um, innate.guru, which is I-N, the number eight, dot guru, G-U-R-U. Okay. Well, thanks again, Tom. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you both. Stay Legends. warm. I will. Thank you. Have a great <laughs> evening. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I'd like to say thank you very much to Tom Eckersley for taking the time to talk with us and share his very personal story with us. I know his words will reach the right people and be of help to them in some way. And I think my favorite thing that Tom said during this recording was his advice to treat yourself like gold. Those are wise words coming from someone that's pretty much seen it all. If you'd like to read Tom's book, Journey of a Post-Traumatic Soul, or to find out more about Tom and what he does, please visit his website, innate.guru. That's spelled I-N, the number eight, dot G-U-R-U. 
And before we go, I'd also like to say thank you to Casey Henson for creating the beautiful music that we use on this podcast, and to Tiana Roser for keeping this podcast interesting and going strong. For more information about us or to access past episodes, please visit our website, beyondtheillusionpodcast.com, and you can find us on social media as well. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Take care.